1 Timothy 6. We're going to look at a couple of verses today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Um, until like 6 o'clock yesterday, I thought today was going to be Father's Day. <laughs> so, because it was, you know, second Sunday or whatever, like, so I had like the day off kind of yesterday. I was like, what do you, what's older pizza? You know, like it was, uh, now I get it again next weekend, but I had to delete the Father's Day illustration uh, from the sermon, uh, preacher problems. Um, first, first Timothy 6, so... Um, let me set the stage like I'm going to tie this to Sunday school a bit and then we'll kind of launch into the message. So we've, we've been kind of working through Acts a little bit if you've been in the adult Sunday school classes. And one of the, the themes that we've been kind of looking at is the, the, the perseverance and the endurance and the things that Paul's had to suffer through in his proclamation of the gospel and spreading and planting churches through uh, on his journeys. And um, there was this moment last week, we looked at a text where Paul was charging the elders of Ephesus with how they should, what they should expect as they continue to grow and plant and, and make disciples in the church. And then today in our, in our text, there was this, there's this um, moment where Paul is in, is in prison and uh, he or at least he's being held and uh, the, the Lord Jesus shows and, and he says, you know, be, be courageous, have, have courage in the same thing that you've just experienced here in Jerusalem, you were going to have to experience that in Rome. I'm, I'm, I'm effectively, I'm charging you with what you're going to have to experience. So I thought it would be cool today, if it'd been keeping with those themes of perseverance and cool in a nerdy kind of way, um, if there is such a thing. But it, it would be interesting, it would be fascinating to look at a point later in Paul's life where tying the, the fact that he's been emboldened, he's been charged to have courage and to continue on in the gospel, after him having done the same thing with the church in Ephesus, to look at a text where, with some time has passed, Paul is now writing back to the Ephesian church to directly to, the, to, to one of their elders, Timothy, and he is going to charge him to continue on in the faith. So that's, that's what we're going to do in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you would please stand with me. Uh, we'll read 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12 together. Here we are. All right. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is the word of the Lord. For God, you can be seated. Were we able to get our picture that I asked on Sunday? There should be a, a painting. Uh, hopefully, we can get it on the screen. If not, let me know. Is that possible, guys? Did you get a, the photograph or no? The answer is no. Okay, that's great. That's fine. Not, not necessary. I'm just trying to like tie in a little graphic thing. That's okay. But I want you to. There's a really famous painting by Emmanuel Lutz. I think it's Lutz. 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 I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. But it's the picture of. It's a painting of George Washington with some soldiers on a boat, and they are crossing the Delaware River. Um, so, um, and it's a very famous point in uh, in the Revolutionary War. George Washington's aim that's being portrayed in this painting was to, um, it was to, to, to lead a surprise attack with his worn down, low morale, 
things aren't looking good in the Revolutionary War army, and they're going to launch a surprise attack against a group of, of Hessian or, or German uh, soldiers. So there's about 14 or 1,500 of them across the Delaware River near Trenton, New Jersey. So the reason Washington wanted to do this is because he, he had, a, had a, a bunch of ragtag, worn-out soldiers. The morale was really low, and so he really wanted to encourage them. He needed a quick win. You know what I'm saying? He needed, he needed a quick win to boost morale. And so he came by, he went through all these war councils with, with, his, you know, with his leaders, and he came up with this plan to cross the Delaware on Christmas night um, and, and, and defeat this, this Hessian militia. So the way he was going to do this, is he had actually three different um, uh, groups of soldiers who were going to participate in this event. So three different crossings. On Christmas night, one colonel would lead about 1,600 uh, militiamen across the river, and they would be near the city of Burlington, New Jersey, and they were going to harass from afar um, other British and Hessian units to keep them from going in and supporting the main attack that was going to take place elsewhere. General Ewing was going to take some Pennsylvania militiamen and he was going to cross the river right, in Trent, right there in Trenton and he was going to take up a defensive position. And then um, Ewing soldiers would also keep the Hessians from retreating. So they're preventing reinforcements on one end. They are preventing a retreat on another end. And then Washington and his 2,400 soldiers would cross um, at two different ferries, 10 miles north, and they, they would march down, and at dawn, the plan was at dawn, they would launch this attack, and they would be surrounded from all sides, they would be kept from getting reinforcements, and there would be this victory, rah, rah, rah. I, everything that could go wrong went wrong, with little known fact about this, about this thing. So inside of Washington's um, group of leadership was a spy, a British spy that's never really been identified as to his name was, but he was privy to all the deliberations in the war council. And this spy went to the British Major General James Grant, um, and Grant took this information and he gave it to another British general, and that British general took it to the Hessian general who was there. And the Hessian general's response was, well, if they're going to come, let them come. We don't even need our guns to beat these guys. We'll just beat them with the bayonet. We don't even need them. That was his response to a spy's information that they are going to be attacked soon. The day before the attack, Christmas Eve, um, this, this same German Hessian got two American soldiers who had deserted. They crossed the river on their own the day before the journey, walked and, and, and deserted and turned themselves in to uh, the Hessians and said, the Americans are coming, the Americans are coming. And, um, and Rawls' response was indifference. It was total indifference. And uh, so, so that was the scenario. And by the time that the, the soldiers reached the launching po point for all the boats, it was raining, and then the, the, the drizzle kind of turned into rain. And by midnight that night, as everybody was trying to cross the river, and that's Christmas, it's freezing. Free, it's 35 in rain. It's like Tennessee winter 101, right? There's a nor'easter. The wind is howling. It's winds in the 60, 70, 80 mile an hour range, and they're trying to cross the, the river. 
And uh, so it, which gave the impression, as difficult as it was, it gave the Germans the impression that there's no way they're going to, uh, there's no way they're going to attack. So it got worse and worse, and then it started to snow. It got worse and worse. And, and Washington came to this point of, he came to this point of like decision, like this is terrible. This is a dumpster fire. All the war council, all the planning, all the need, all the, the spies, the, this is all falling apart. And, and Washington came to this moment looking at all of his choices. Now he's also three hours behind schedule because of the weather. And he says, in his, it, it's, it is, we have this record of him writing down in a, in a letter. He says, um, I was certain there was no making a retreat without being discovered. And being harassed on this river, I determined to push on at all events. I weighed everything that was going on, and I looked at the possible outcomes based on the scenario that I was in, and I made a charge to my soldiers, push on. It reminded me of the circumstances that Paul was in in, chapter, in, in the Acts chapters that we've been looking at, and I think, it's, I think it is um, a, a pretty good word picture for where Timothy found himself to be in Ephesus as this elder leading this church that has full of people who just months and years earlier were worshiping Artemis, you know, um, a, a god of their own making. Can you imagine the challenges that he would be facing? And so Paul writes First Timothy, and in many respects, it's how to do church. And he comes to the end of chapter, of uh, the very end of the letter, and we get to chapter 6, and so he just kind of lays it all. He considers all the things that Timothy's how to do with, and he says to Timothy, this is what I'm charging you to do, verse 11 and 12. Now, before we get right into 11 and 12, can we just pause for a moment and consider how countercultural this is? That, that you would have someone in your life who tells you how to live your life. So the more I've thought about this week, I am fascinated by the paradox that I see taking place in our culture right now. Because on the one hand, Never have I seen so many don't tread on me license plates. Never have more people wanted to live on more land and be more independent. Never has libertarianism grown so rapidly as a viable political ideology. Independence is all the rage. Don't tell me what to do. And yet on the other hand, Never have more Americans been paying for counseling. Never has the life coach industry been a thing. More books are available on mentoring than ever before in the history of publishing. So I'm not sure if our culture is splitting along these lines like, no, you must be independent, no, you must be dependent or interdependent at least, or if... Uh, the growth of these things isn't uh, taking place because they're canceling each other out, right? Like at the same time that beard oil sales were rising in 2014, 15, and 16, Dollar Shave Club also came along in which you shave your beard, right? So both of these things are robust industries at the same time. So I'm not sure what's going on in our culture, but it's fascinating. 
But here's a text where Paul presumes, based upon his relationship between Timothy, that he can tell Timothy how to live his life, how to do his job, how to fulfill his calling. And it raises the question, who is it in your life that has the relationship with you that they can tell you how to live? I could name at least four adults. Think about that. I I can think of at least four adults who, without hesitation, both would and could speak into my life, and I would be forced to listen to them for lots of reasons. And I can also think of some others who have had that position in my life, but they never should have had it. So just thinking about that reminds me of Psalm 1, like how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, stand in the pathway of sinners, sit in the company of mockers, but their delight is in the Lord's instruction. And it's on that that he meditates day and night. So let's just stop and think for a moment about who it is in our life that has the relationship strong enough to tell us how to live our life. Who should be there but isn't? Who should not be there but is? Who is it that is charging you? Who is it that is speaking into you? Let you sit on that just for a moment. Because for Timothy, it was Paul. Paul is charging Timothy. And it's what he charges him with that is so beautiful. The first thing that Paul charges Timothy with is in verse 11. And that is how to live his life. Look at verse 11. Paul says, but you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness. Paul charges Timothy as a Christian on how to live his life. He describes for Timothy what the Christian life should look like morally, what it should look like ethically, and he charges him to live consistently with those virtues and with those ways. Now, what I really love about this passage is that Paul boils it down to just plain old common sense. I I love common sense. Paul could be really prolific. He could be really colorful. He could be really nuanced um, as you read some of his letters, but he also knew how to keep things really, really simple. And this is a really, really great example because if you'll read the text, there's no secret to learn. There's no formula to recite. There's no technique that he has to master. He just says, run from evil, these things, which I'll come to in a moment, and run after goodness in the same way that you run after success. Run from evil the same way that you run after danger. Run for goodness in the same way that you would run after success. So how do we, how do we what do you mean flee from these things, flee from evil and, and flee toward and pursue these, these good things? Well, first let's talk about fleeing evil. So in your text, if you, in your Bible, if you want to underline these things or circle it and draw a line back to verses 9 and 10, that's what Paul is, is referencing. He's referencing verses 9 and 10. He's talking about the love of money and the, and the evil that can come with the love of money, which is a whole other sermon. But the temptation is to believe, this is really important, don't miss this. The temptation is to believe that money can give you the things that Paul is going to talk about here in just a moment. Righteousness, godliness, morality, steadiness, kindness. The temptation is to believe that having the financial resources to purchase those things or to purchase 
things that can cover up the fact that you don't have those things is adequate to in some way make you a righteous person or make you, I mean, let's talk about money can cover up a lot of problems. And in some problems, it kind of can solve. But we don't want to then worship money and then give our lives to it. And so Paul is saying we need to run away from the, the, the love and the idolatry of money. Here's, here's an illustration. So in Texas this week, there were some folks who, there four, four adults, four grown adults, four grown responsible adults, got into a boat that had an electric motor, you know, so not, not a very powerful environment, and they got onto a reservoir that at the other end of the reservoir, there was a spillover that went down, you know, dozens of feet in which the water was spilling over the concrete wall down into, you know, hundred, you know dozens and dozens of feet down to uh, a, a lot of dangerous scenarios down at the bottom. So in this electric boat, they thought it would be really fun uh, on this pleasure cruise. For fun, they tried to see how close they could get to the spillover. And, of course, they got too close, and their electric motor was unable to power them out of the natural suction that takes place closer you get to the spillover, so much so that their boat got stuck on the ledge, and they were, Google it, they were teetering, there's a photograph from a helicopter, with them, the four of them, on the back of the boat, but not too far back, because they didn't want to lift the bottom off the concrete ledge that they were stuck on, Um, but they were stuck there, teetering, all of them even sitting in the back. Now, they were rescued. Okay, I mean, just remove the, there's no trauma. Um, everybody was fine. But they believed that pursuing the edge could give them joy. But what it brought was danger. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't fall victim to the idea that pursuing money will bring you true lasting joy because it won't. It actually puts you in great danger because you'll worship it. You'll submit to it. You will idolize it. So Paul says, don't pursue those things. But what I do want you to run after is four other things. Verse 11, he says, I want you to pursue righteousness. And Paul, based on the context, is is, is encouraging uh, Timothy to go after a just life, a right life, in a gospel-centered way, which I'll come to in a moment. But he wants him to lead a, a reputable life, a life that instills trust in his relationships um, in all his everyday dealings, he wants him to come. He wants him to be a genuine, righteous, good dude, and he wants him to pursue godliness. Our lives are characterized by what we pursue, and if we are pursuing God, then we will resemble God, not the not money, not going after the other thing in verse nine and ten. Third, Paul says, faith and love. Paul often puts those words together in his writings. Faith and love. And what, Paul, what he means here is that he wants, on one hand, faithfulness. He wants integrity in Timothy's life. And then he also wants this love of sacrifice and service where there's no room for greed in doing it. He wants him to go after those things. And then lastly, Paul says, I want you to go after endurance and I want you to go after gentleness. Now, I find this couplet very fascinating in the context of Acts 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 that we've been reading. What is endurance? Endurance is patience with difficult circumstances. Keep going. Keep going. It is endurance and patience. Endurance is patience with difficult circumstances. No matter, it's whatever you're experiencing, 
keep going in the faith through what you're dealing with. What is, what is gentleness? <laughs> gentleness is patience with difficult people. Uh, are you familiar with the concept of being hangry? You know what I'm talking about? Hangry is when you are enraged because you are starving, so to speak, right? So when you are, when you are hungry, you become angry and you lash out at other people. I think that's a helpful metaphor for understanding what Paul is talking about here. So when you feel hungry and the circumstances don't allow you to satiate your hunger... What do you need? Endurance. You have a difficult circumstance, a lack of adequate calories. So what are you going to do? You're, you're going to endure. Keep going. Fight through the circumstances to maintain faithful. Well, that's fine if you're alone. But then somebody runs into your life, like your spouse or your children or the neighbors or whatever else. And because you are hungry, what do you, what's the temptation? to lose patience with them and not be gentle, but be harsh uh, and be rude or be coarse. Um, that's what, this is what Paul's getting at. He says there are circumstances in your life that you are experiencing in part because of the gospel, but the gospel demonstrates endurance through difficult circumstances and endurance in your relationships with people. That's gentleness. So you, you treat people as if the gospel is true and it's Lord of your circumstances instead of your circumstances being more true than the Lord who brought them to you. So if you want to be like Jesus, we have to be the one who stays when everyone walks away, be the one who forgives when it's undeserved, show grace when everyone else is throwing stones, show love when everybody else is being betrayed. That's, that's the gospel. That's the gospel lived out. And that's what Paul charges him. I charge you to live this way. He's rhetorically through this scroll in his face on this matter. But it's not just how to live. He also charges Timothy with what to believe. Look at verse 12. Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. There is an inherent relationship between how we live and how we think. The fuel for running from evil and pursuing godliness is doctrine. What we believe and what we fight to believe about God fuels the lifestyle that resembles the life of Jesus. And the reason Paul says that Timothy is going to have to fight for this is because we are prone to drift and no one drifts toward holiness. No one drifts toward truth. Also this week, people are getting back out. There's a lady in Alaska was celebrating her 30th birthday. Her name was Holly Spence. And she was with her roommate, Lipa, and Lipa's brother, Nation, Alaska. And they climbed onto a 10-foot inflatable pink flamingo. Think about it. Envision it. With the three of them, their two dogs, and they got into a shallow area of White Sands Beach in Kodiak, Alaska. Sunny, clear, beautiful day, very windy. They packed some extra clothes, some blankets, some snacks, some non-alcoholic beverages to enjoy an afternoon of just relaxing on the float like it was just this big inflatable couch and to talk on her 30th birthday. But they did not pack jack life jackets or paddles. 
The wind picked up, and before they knew it, they were out to sea in the frigid Alaskan waters. And they could not do anything about it because they didn't have life jackets or paddles. They lacked the tools necessary to keep them or recorrect their drift. They also were rescued by a U.S. Coast Guard helicopter all as well. You have to fight. They, had to, they were going to have to fight to stay in the safe waters because of the winds. The same thing is true with us doctrinally. We don't just drift toward truth. We drift away from truth. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And so we need teaching. We need time in the Bible. We need time in prayer. We need fellowship with believers to fight the good fight of the faith and want to be a part of the truth. I have a friend who loves to watch UFC fighting. I, it's, I, I can't, well, it's too dangerous. I just, I get, you know what I'm talking about? This is like, let's just take off all of our things and beat each other to a pulp in our cage. Like that's, that's what UFC is. Like I like watching fighting like in the movies because it's fake. You know, the choreographer, I'm like, wow, how they choreograph that. Man, the sound effects are awesome. How do they pull that off so realistically? But I do not like to watch real fighting in a ring in which legs and arms are broken and noses are disfigured. Like, I just, I don't like that language. But Paul uses that language. This is the gospel. We have to, we have to fight for it. It's essential for the health of the church. It's essential for godly living. And so Paul charges Timothy to fight for the faith. And we need to do that as well. Lastly. Paul charges Timothy with how to live the life and what to believe. And look at verse 12. He, Paul, he charges Timothy to own it. Own it. Look at verse 12. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What a fascinating charge. Take hold in the present of eternal life. Right here in the present, Paul wants Timothy to take possession of the future and live like the future is right now. What? He wants eternal life to be understood as a present possession. So let me, let me think of it. Boys and girls, boys and girls, how many of you got a Christmas present this past Christmas? Raise your hand. Raise your hand real high. Adults, you can raise your hand too if you've got a Christmas present. That's right. That works out really good, right? So what was the best present that you got for Christmas? Somebody shout something out. A drone. That's right. That's right, Luke. It lasted three days. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Anybody else? What'd you get for Christmas? What'd you get? Books. Presents. Socks. Whose parents gave their kids socks for Christmas? I'm just kidding. That's when we kids get clothes too, right? Legos. I love Legos. What else? Nintendo? Ah, now, so y'all are now less holy than you were in Sunday school because y'all got Nintendo. That's good. Okay. You really? Oh, it's amazing. Awesome. Yes. Now, let me ask you this question. When's the last time you really played for a long time with that Christmas present? Yeah. Yesterday, bless you. Now, now you're back up there. Now you're more holy. Y'all are just a holy roller coaster, the Scow family. Yes. Isn't it funny how when you first get a Christmas present, you play with it for hours, right? You'll play with it for days. And then more time goes by, 
Maybe there are other reasons to celebrate. Maybe you get a birthday present later. But eventually that gift that you get just kind of is not as interesting anymore, right? You just don't, you still own it. That Christmas present is still in your closet or in your trunk, in your room. But you really just don't play with it very much anymore. That's what happens to us when it comes to eternal life. It is possible to possess it without owning it. The word here in the Greek means take hold of it, grasp it violently. Do not let anybody take it from you. Make it your own. That's what Paul wants us to do with eternal life. It is ours. We have it. It's a future reality, but it is a present possession. So Paul says, grab hold of it. Now think about this charge. How to live, how to think, how to own. All of these are important but we've got to keep all three going at the same time. We can fight for truth and neglect holiness and the character flaws that will ensue will stain the truth that we're fighting so hard to protect. You can pursue holiness at the expense of doctrine and eventually you're going to run out of gas and you're becoming a hypocritical legalist rather than a gospel-loving, joyful person. You can become so heavenly-minded that you are no earthly good. Eternal possession is a present reality that we must not forget, but we should not separate it from the presentness of our lives. Just living over here in heaven, like what we got going on here isn't, doesn't matter. It's not true either. So we, the, the call, the conclusion for Paul is to keep these things in balance in our lives. So how do you do that? You preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. Here's what I mean by that. In, in a nutshell for me, the way, the way this happens is this. Two things happen when I become a Christian the Lord, for the first time, opens my eyes to two realities. Reality number one, He is a holy, loving God. And, and reality number two is, I am a, I'm a sinner, undeserving of who He is and what He has done on my behalf. And the fact that He would live the holiness, the life that I couldn't live, and pay a debt that I could not pay, on my behalf, through His Son, Jesus Christ, is amazing to me. He loves me in that way, and my eyes are open to it for the first time. So now I'm a Christian. How do I keep living the life that results from this truth? How do I fight for that truth? Like, how do I do that? Answer, I, I grow in my awareness of the holiness and love of God And, number two, I grow in my awareness of the depth of my sin problem. I'm 30 years, 35 years past my salvation. And I only, as a 46-year-old, I am far more aware of the depth of the sin problem that I have than I was when I was 11 when this truth was just made known to me for the first time. I grasp it initially. Now I grasp it voluminously. (laughs) And preaching that reality to myself 
makes me all the more grateful for who Jesus is and what he's done. And the result of that is that I want to know more about the gospel truth. I want to live more like the gospel truth. And I want the present reality of eternal possession to be real for me now. This is not the pursuit of virtue separate from the gospel. Paul's not charging him to live a holy life. Be a good person, Timothy. Be a good person. Come on now, you can do it. Be a good person. That's not what he's doing here. He's saying preach the gospel to yourself and you will be more like the one that you're beholding. And that's how you do it. So we're going we're gonna to enter into a time of, of, uh, of response. One of the responses we're going to have comes from this table over here where we do just that. Where we, we, we preach the gospel to ourselves through taking of these, these, these elements. The body and the blood of Jesus broken and spilled out for us. That's what we're going to do. But here's the other thing that's going to take, take place. So in just a moment, Kevin and Ken are going to be here, and we're going to have a time of response in which we sing. You say, well, why? what do you mean by response? I, I, I mean several things. Maybe just now in this moment, you're like, oh, that's what it means to be a Christian. Sign me up. Come down and talk to Ken or Kevin. They'll pray with you and we'll talk about it. And if we can't figure it all out during the three verses of the song, that's cool. We'll do it afterward. We're sticking around for a picnic anyway. Maybe you're like, ah, you know, I, I'm already a Christian, but I haven't been baptized. This is the time. Come forward, talk to them. Everybody in the room wants you to do it. Everybody in the room, if that's where you are, come and talk to them and pray, and we'll get that done. Joining the church, same thing. I don't want to do that in front of somebody. Everybody in this room can't wait for you to do it. You'll be pleasing everybody in the room if that's the case, right? Come on down, talk to them, and pray with them. I hope that you will, I hope that you will do that. All right, let's pray together, and we'll, we'll respond. We'll respond. Uh, Father, thank you for your, your word. Real-time letters, like getting into people's mail and seeing how the truth of the gospel was applied. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's just amazing to, to, to get into the history and, and, and get into the truth that you were proclaiming. In real, in real history, in real time, in this relationship between Paul and Timothy and all of Paul's journeys and all of Timothy's struggles as an elder. And in it, Lord, we see some really profound truths about who you are and what you've done and how that truth is being applied and how we can, we can apply it to ourselves as well. So we ask that we would believe the gospel, that it would fuel a life of virtue, um, and that we would live as people who own heaven even now. Own it experience it as a present reality. Help us to respond with joy and faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.